Hello and welcome again to Inside the GM Studio podcast, all about the tabletop RPG hobby centered mostly for the game masters, but we like to have the players come in. We make it nice and warm. We give them a drink. Let them know if you want. We got some cigars here. We got, you need a light? I'll light it for you. It's all right. We're on your side. I'm your host, Matt. I'm David. And today... We've got a few things, Dave and I. We're going to talk about Vox Machina Season 2. Uh, we got an email from Jacob, uh, if we get around to it. We got our community questions. We got our main topic today, which is how to get them players I was just talking about invested in the fucking game that you just made. So to start uh, off with, how you been? Uh, uh, how's I heard that the weather out there in California has been pretty shit. Nah, it's been kind of cold, but I mean... People out here just pussies, basically, is what it amounts to. It's like, it's so cold. Like, it's 50 degrees. February. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I guess. But, yeah, it's been actually being, it got down below freezing a couple of nights. It's like, whoa, look out. Yeah, I heard Uh, that there was a blizzard warning. uh, In SoCal, they got snow down in L.A. so fun. I think we might be getting, uh, there's, like, some other pockets up here that got a little bit of snow. But not, not even what I would really call snow. That's a... Really, neither here nor there. You know what I was thinking? Hmm. You're always like, uh, like to bring the players in. Have we ever brought a player? I don't know. I have no idea. Hey, if you're out there, we should do that so that that's actually an accurate statement. Yeah, let us know if you're there. Bring the players in. Yeah, I don't know. Go ahead. I mean, not our players. Our players are plebes. Yeah, but but. so, uh, Vox Machina season two. We both finished it. We both watched it. How'd you feel about it? I felt pretty good about it. I was a little surprised that they didn't conclude the plot line. Um, the com- the like emphasized a- yeah, the Chroma Conclave arc goes on for quite a while. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's a as I'm always talking about on the show, like things with high stakes and things that are kind of world altering events take a long time to get through as I could see this going on for another couple seasons. Mm-hmm. Even. But they spent a lot of time on more character driven stuff, mm-hmm. which some of which I liked and some of which I thought could, could have done without. Um, also again, the whole fucking timeline thing is, is muddied. They were in the Faye wild and it's been weeks. Apparently they're like, Oh damn Faye wild. You know, we've been gone three weeks. It's like, right, but the rest of the, what happened for three, what was the rest of the party that you split from doing for three weeks? Yeah, it is a little odd. Don't know. Mm. Don't know. Doesn't seem to matter. So it was interesting to get some of the backstory on the characters. I, I got to say, I didn't really care for most of the Grog's plot line. There was some interesting elements, kind of how he was exiled and how he met, uh, Pike. What's Ashley Johnson's character's name? Um, Pike. Pike. Pike's granddad mm-hmm. or whatever. And that was, I liked that, but. Um, and then some of the other character stuff was here or there. I liked some of it. Some of it wasn't necessarily germane. The, but I thought the action and the pacing overall were pretty good. I really liked that they despite its kind of tongue-in-cheek nature and very PG, for lack of a better word, in most circumstances, that they don't shy away from, like, showing gruesome violence. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, you know, there was, like I, like I said, the whole, like, Scanlan's daughter thing. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I get that you're trying to bring characters and our demons into the main fold of the plot, but some of it hit a little better for me than other moments where I was just kind of like, where is this going? Can we get on with like what's happening? Like, sure. I get it. You guys are wrestling with these things, but it's like, are you trying to stop these dragons or whatever? Did you, did you think the pacing was as good in the second season as it was in the first? No, season? I don't think so. I think, uh, cause I've already told you about how I think they're rushing things right now or they're mm-hmm. trying to compact. I mean, like a year's worth of game time or story that they've made already. And they're trying to compact it into, these 10 episodes um i think it was 12 right was it yeah maybe it was 12 
I think it's 12 because they did three, 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 three. Right. Or three, 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 three. Um, and other things is they're trying to help bring in that backstory that was already, um, for people that already knew, it was just like a quick blurb that we could find out when it was just a critical role on, on Twitch or whatever. Now they're trying to kind of pack in everybody's backgrounds into these episodes as well. Uh, so that's kind of throwing things around. Uh, I think it's going to kind of start to fuck with the the timeline and whatnot. But hopefully there's they're really getting into that. They've already dealt with everybody's past so far. Um, and that's just going to be over with. And they're just going to start going head on to everything now. But uh, I I was still into it the entire time. I really like how they've done the uh, the Raven Queen arc with uh, uh, Vax becoming a paladin of the Raven Queen. They've really done, they did it really good. Uh, to actually see this visually now, I find a real excitement to see it now. And I think they've done it really well. The whole plot line with him and the uh, matron of ravens, as they call her in, in the show, was one of the elements that I was intrigued by early in the season. And then when it kind of comes to a head, I was just kind of like, oh, I was kind of anticlimactic. I didn't really. And same thing with like Scanlan's backstory. They don't really give him a backstory. Mm -mm. Like he's a womanizer and he's like whatever, but. If you're going to give me backstory, I want to know who he was before that. I want to know not just these things that are bubbling up from his past, but who is he? Mm -hmm. That we don't have a clear sense of. And so I felt like the whole plot thread with this one gal as his daughter. And he's kind of wrestling with his nature. And I think they do a fairly good job of like showing how difficult it is for him to not let that like bubble up. There's a serious moment and he always kind of diffuses it with sarcasm or some tawdry remark or something like that. That's good. So I, I, there were elements of each plot thread that I liked, but the same thing with like Grog, like, you know, like, and he like deflated and then it's like, you know, the power of love or whatever. And he's like, and not to mention it's like the characters are pairing off and I don't really, there's too much emphasis on that i think it's like now we have seven characters and there's basically like two of them are like there's they're a thing and then two of the other ones are a thing mm -hmm. and then there's an illusion that the two of the other ones might be another thing and it's like I, I don't i don't need a romantic comedy here but i did think some of the more lighthearted moments for me were amusing like when he's recalling oh yeah i remember your your mom i was you know i was just kidding he's like this it's just like that's not my mom <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh okay that's that's funny it's got some moments, but you know, I wanted also apparently I, I wanted to know uh, how some of this stuff was going to come across, like with Grog and um, Craven Edge. Like in the game, we had all the the information on what Craven Edge would do if he ever failed his save, or you know, the whole thing about the sword. And knowing that with the sword taking sapping his strength, we knew in mechanics wise that's what would happen, but story wise. If when it came across like that visually on television, if it would come across okay, and I thought it did. Uh, I don't know if it came across as good as with just all the details that we had of what would happen if uh, if he failed a save, if he would fail a save with the sword. Uh, mm -hmm. But did you see? Did you think that it came across clearly from somebody that never knew this information before? clearly that what that like if he failed to save or whatever broke his attunement to the sword that it would deplete his yeah. strength i didn't get a sense of any sort of like saving throws or anything mm. happening i figured just like once he lost attunement that the sword takes with it the power that it kind of hit and you takes a takes a tax essentially mm. i also thought it was kind of weird that it was just like he gets rid of the sword and then that's that's it like the sword's just gone yeah it's like well what did you do with it? What happened to it? That could be, maybe it's an open plot thread where they could allude to it at a later date. Someone else picks it up or whatever. So that was, like I said, I, I, I that was one of the less interesting elements of the, uh, the series for me was like his whole, I liked the backstory that went with it. 
but the layering of the two just felt a little like I don't know shoehorn yeah. I guess but there's again there's a lot of characters in the party so I understand how difficult it is to kind of give us a sense of who each of them are and not distract from the overarching plot that's that's difficult so I'm certainly not criticizing it uh, but I think that I want more balance between the characters performing heroic actions and seeing some of their vulnerabilities. It seems like there's so much of the series devoted to the injecting these moments of like camaraderie, which kind of manifest in romance. And I don't necessarily need that. And like, let's just show how these characters are like damaged and weak. And it's like, right. But in order for that to be meaningful to me, I need to also see their strengths. Mm -hmm. And for them to perform heroic acts here and there. And they, they do a pretty good job of it at certain intervals. Uh, I particularly liked when they're all beat up after they, they fight the big black dragon who is defecting from the Chroma, Chroma Conclave. And the, the gal that's his handler is kind of like a wild card or like the mystery of that, where that was going. And they have a fight with a... I don't remember if the dragon is a male or a female dragon. But I don't think they can tell you, but. Yeah, don't remember. But he absconds and they're like, you know, we need to regroup and regather. And they're like, the group is like, you know, there's like moments of leadership in that moment, which is like, no, we need to kind of push the envelope. Like, but we're, we're battered and we're beat up. And I'm like, but so is the dragon. Right. So we need to kind of, that shows, um, competing goods. And I, go on the show often about how moments like that should be more prevalent in any given campaign. I know they could be more prevalent in my campaigns where it's like you, you have a, a crucial thing where it could go one way or another and there needs to be a cost and a benefit. Mm -hmm. And I thought they did this a little bit. They did it a little better this season than they did last season. Um, but probably just because the scope of the plot is, yeah, is pulling out. Were there any real big moments for you that were like oh man it's like a fan of the critical role show like i remember that part or i remember that was like super cool or i you know, was wondering how that would play out on screen uh definitely the fight uh between grog and uh okay what was his name carmack uh for the mm -hmm. titanstone knuckles uh i always wanted to see that fight live and see if it would be the same thing that i thought in my head while i was watching it of course the scene of vax uh talking to the Raven queen about taking him instead of Vex when she died at that mm -hmm. time. Uh, those were the two big ones uh, because everything else was so, even though they were big uh, story introductions, like Kaylee, uh, Scanlan's daughter, all this other stuff. Uh, those were the two big ones that I wanted to see cinematically like animated, mm -hmm. especially from Titmouse is an amazing animation studio that I've been a fan of for a very long time. And I, I thought that they would do an amazing job doing it. And I think they did it. I think they did a great job as well as all of interactions with Grog and uh, Craven Edge. I was expecting more. They didn't do all of the um, interactions that I, they, I thought they would do because they, they had a lot of interactions in the actual game. They talked a lot together. And uh, there was a lot more uh, between Pike and Grog in the actual game. Uh, she kept like catching him while he would talk to the sword. Uh, and it was a big mystery. She kept trying to put things together and they had it in the show, but they smashed it together. They made it a lot shorter. Uh, of course, you know, the, the conclusion conclusion when he ended up stabbing her, when he went out of control, uh, I did want to see something else. Oh, okay. So the old campaign that I had with, uh, our friends, uh, little Nate, Cody, uh, and a couple of the other people that we know, I used Craven Edge in that game, the one that went to level 20. Cody yeah. had Craven Edge for a little while. Uh, well, Craven Edge is basically Black Razor, from what I can tell. Kind of, uh, just different powers. Uh, yeah. Just a little bit yeah, different. Yeah, that was unclear, as though the mechanics are unclear. One thing that I will say I would like a crisper delineation for purposes of a television show is 
Pike's ability to heal. Mm -hmm. I don't really, it seems to kind of remove some of the tension from any given encounter when it's like, well, what are her healing capabilities? How are they, how are they finite? Mm -hmm. What thresholds can she heal? Because it seems like when the plot calls for her to be able to heal somebody completely, she can. Mm -hmm. And when it's partially, then then that's what's available. It, it just seems, and I get that that's probably going on behind the scenes and the game mechanics, but I would like a, a better way to distinguish it. I think that's on one of the so it doesn't just. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things to do, uh, mm -hmm. as you are the healer of this group, and as we're trying to tell this story on television of this, you know, this person that's able to call down divine intervention pretty much and heal people uh but when in games terms we know that oh if it doesn't work out oh okay well yeah you rolled poorly or uh or you were out of spell slots or whatever yeah. it's just a hard thing to come across and i don't think that they've been able to find that that way to make it come across differently i think with because it's quite literally a divine power right mm -hmm. so it's like how do you make it not be a deus ex machina yeah it's like at the beginning, when she was having hard time between her and, oh, fuck, what's it called? Uh, the wild light or whatever they're calling it in the show. Uh, Everlight. Everlight. You know, how she was, like, losing her faith, and that's why her powers weren't working so well. It was like, okay, mm -hmm. so there, there's an easy thing to bring in. But now that her and the Everlight are fucking buddy-buddy again, how do we go about showing that, yes, things can fail? Uh, I think they're just having a hard time trying to make that visually... So, and you know uh theatrically doable and it i i get it it's it's a difficult thing to do we get a scene of her kicking some ass i thought that yeah, was kind of cool where she's like she's like fighting off the fucking dudes or whatever and um yeah i don't know i give it like a b I kind of downgraded a little bit from the first half of the season was probably a little bit. I'll agree better. with you. I'll, I'd probably give it a B plus just because of the fanboy part. But I, yeah, B sounds good. I, yeah, I was, like I said, the whole matron of Ravens thing. It's like, oh, well, no, it's just, uh, you know, you're, you're chosen or whatever. And it's like, oh, that's all resolved. Yeah. Man. It's like, it's, it's going to oh, be okay. an ongoing thing. There's a lot more of it coming. Be, uh, because sure. these, uh, the artifacts that they're going to find, uh, they all level up. There's different levels of them, and in the game, they all level them up, so there's different things that happen with them. And his armor, there's a lot of different things that happen. We've already seen it level up once, where he gets his wings. That was mm -hmm. the first level up that the armor gets, as he gets the he gets a fly speed with the wings. Cool. But uh, with that, I think yes, I'm gonna agree. B, solid B. I will ten. I'll uh, go with B plus, but. So far, yes. If you haven't watched it, I highly suggest that you give it a go. See what you think. I wanted to bring up, uh, before we go into the uh, the community questions, uh, Jacob emailed us. And he just wanted okay. to know our top three prep tools. Uh, he says, I'd just like to know what you guys use for uh, books, random tables, websites. I'll give you a few examples, things that this is what Jacob uses. Basic shit like Xanathar's guide has a lot of tables that I like to use for every day or every day. Oh yeah. Every game, uh, a name generator that I found online as well as a little bit of jazz cabs to help me being less of a per perfectionist. So Dave, if you had to choose your top three things when you're writing, uh, a campaign or just a scenario coming up, what are some of the tools that you like to use or even at the game? If you use any, I don't think you do. I don't. Uh, Xanathar's Guide is very good for, for tables. He's right on that. So tables for reference, for character building, for um, establishing NPCs even, like quick and dirty, just kind of giving it any given NPC, you know, and rolling. I'm not a big fan of rolling on the tables. I just kind of like look at them and go like, okay, I'll just choose that one, this one, this one. You know, it gives players uh, or characters a little more texture and this works for pcs too at character generation i think that's what they're intended for but you don't need to use them for that i'm a big fan of movies so i draw a lot from 
watching movies. I'm not a big fantasy reader. I, I don't really read stuff in that genre as, as much, but movies, and they don't have to be fantasy movies at all. I mean, some movies that I watch, I like movies, even something like Highlander, mm-hmm. for instance, which isn't really a fantasy, heroic fantasy setting, but I just find certain components when I'm watching a movie and I'll note them in my head. Like, oh, this is got good drama for reasons X, Y, and Z. And if there's opportunities for me to kind of put a scenario similar to that in my campaign, uh, then I do. So that's probably a little... The first one is a little mechanical. The second one is purely artistic. And I will say the third one, which is purely mechanical, is Cobalt Fight Club. Like, you oh, really should get I hip to that. I forgot about Cobalt Fight Club. Yeah, it was gone for a while, but it's, it's come back. It's an encounter builder. And what it allows you to do is kind of have a good idea of how challenging any given encounter is. Um, I'm trying to think of other tools. I used to I used to use um, Pinterest is actually a really good source for maps. If mm-hmm. you need mm-hmm. maps for, you know, a homebrew campaign or whatever. Uh, lots of really lively maps that people just seem to revel in using uh, to for a variety of different avenues. What? Uh, but again, that said, I, I don't really pull from very many different resources as far as uh, tools available to me as as a GM. But those are those are some of the pillar ones on the kind of creative and and mechanical aspect. Yeah, uh, I use. For on-the-spot things, I do have a few name generators, uh, especially for if I am running a fantasy game. Uh, I have mm-hmm. to do a fantasy name generator. Otherwise, I'll I'll sit there for fucking ever. But luckily, 90% of the games that I run are all modern or cyberpunk. So mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about too much of them. I do have name generators for those, just in case for those days that I get too drunk while playing and I need some at least something to help me fill in the blanks um sure i use i like to be weirdly organized when i'm making stuff so i will use foundry not only for a vtt i use it as a whole like campaign builder just because of all the hyperlinks you can do the other stuff that you can just drag and drop out uh maps that you can leave in there so that just becomes like my hub of when i create a campaign I'll also have all my NPCs and the characters in there. Uh, And then third, something that I always got to have with me. At the table, I have to have music, but I use Foundry for that Mm -hmm. as well. But I will always make a a playlist Uh, before. I would always make a playlist in Spotify and use it at the table if we're playing live. Yeah, name generator is the biggest thing I need. Uh, I guess if I was playing D&D, uh, Cobalt Fight Club was one of my big ones because, like you yeah. said, uh, to build an encounter, Cobalt Fight Club was the fucking shit. To be able to just, what do you, what, uh, what level are your PCs? You just give it all the information; they would give you some stuff to put in there. And I loved it, and it's and it's really streamlined now compared to what it used to be. It, since they rebooted, it was gone for probably like more than a year. Another uh, resource that I don't use anymore, but I used to when I was building out my own adventures in Roll20, if you are a digital player, Mm -hmm. is Pyromancer for building maps. Uh, Pyromancer basically just, it's like a map builder, and so you can just build, you can set the texture of whatever room, you go, okay, I want like brown flagstone, I want grass, I want whatever. And then it just, you know, does it in cells. So it's like, you know, you just drag down and it's really easy to build. And then you export it as a PDF. And then you can import it into Roll20 for like a playable map. Uh, You'd have to go through and do all the dynamic lighting on it, which is admittedly a fucking headache. They might have some shortcuts on that now. Uh, I mean, obviously, if if he's not using Roll20 or or Foundry, then uh, what's the other one? Fantasy Grounds? Fantasy Grounds, yeah. Right. If it's not using one of those digitally, then that's a pretty good resource. But it really depends on whether you're playing digitally or analog. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's plenty of differences between those two. Like, you know, if you're hip to minis, 
then you're playing in person and whiz kids makes a lot of uh really inexpensive minis mm -hmm. they're paintable they're you know whatever um and you can get them for fairly inexpensive like a trio of goblins would be like three or four bucks so that's fairly inexpensive but that said uh what what is the name i'm trying to remember there is I wish I could remember it right off the top of my head. But if you have a 3D printer, there is a place that will customize your mini. You can design it. Oh, hero. And you design it. Hero lab. You design your own mini like for your PC, and you can do one of two things. Either have it printed and they'll ship it to you, or if you have a 3D printer, they'll send you can just pay like half the cost. It's like a third of the cost. Yeah, it's like eight or 10 bucks yeah. and they'll send you the file like for your 3d printer to just import it and just print it out. So that's a good route to go. If you're into building minis, you like to use minis and environments and stuff like that. And so you should have a 3d printer toward that end. Uh, that said, generally speaking, I err on the side of having the players all have their own minis and then just kind of drawing out the rest of the map and maybe having tokens I want to, if anyone knows, anyone listening to this show knows where you can just get tokens like they used to have in fourth edition, like just token sets. Apparently, they're just like impossible to find now. Can't get them. And you try to buy those monster vaults from like fourth edition and they're like hundreds of dollars. Yeah. It's the token sets. I don't know why they don't bring these back. They, they were great. They brought them in for fourth, fourth edition and then they kind of got rid of them and they started erring toward the side of like selling minis again. And it's, I don't know, kind of stupid, but, uh, but those, those, I would say it depends on whether analog or, or digital, digital or probably a little more, uh, beyond that, the core rule book, you know, um, oh, another one, if you're playing analog is that wizards publishes these, you can buy them pretty much at any hobby shop and it's broken down by challenge rating, but you can buy a deck of the monster cards. So you don't have to have the monstrous manual like open. So what I would do is before each session we played in person, I had this deck of monsters challenges zero to five from the monster manual. And they also have one for Volo's guide of monsters. And then they have ones for, you know, six to 10 and like on up the challenge rating. But if you're starting a new campaign, you just buy this deck. It's like maybe 15 bucks, maybe 20, depending on where you live. And it has all the monsters in the monsters manual from challenges zero to five. And then you go, okay, what monsters are likely to be in this session? You get them out and you have them ready and it has their stat blocks on the cards. It's a really great resource. And I think they also have ones for you can buy individually. Uh, and again, I'm not like a proponent of, of dumping a bunch of money at shit. I think you should outsource this to your players. Mm -hmm. Like you're a ranger here. There is a, ranger spells and ranger class features that you can just buy it's like 10 bucks and it's a worthwhile endeavor for each player if you're a cleric it gives you all of the cleric spell cards mm -hmm. and so that you just have them in front of you and you don't need to have some big handwritten or typed up thing it, it's like 10 or 15 bucks for the whole deck for your class for all the spells and the class features and your channel divinity and everything it's worth that cost to just save you the fucking time and have it readily accessible to you. And uh, if you're playing in person, it's a, it's a real benefit. That's one thing I forgot about because we don't do a lot of, when we do combat, uh, we don't do a lot of maps a lot of times for like our Savage Shadowrun game. But every now and then mm -hmm. I want one and I'll set something up. And I do have tokens that came from the box set when I did the Kickstarter for uh, uh, Savage Worlds. Uh, adventure edition so it's like you know shaken bound uh if you've taken wounds yeah. or anything it's just little tokens that you can put next to there also very good to have yeah i remember you had one for D, &D mm -hmm. when we played that was like a wooden box and it had like i don't know how much it cost but it had like a little bloody thing yep. and they, they were small enough they would just fit on the base of your mini so it's like you're bloody you're poisoned or whatever those things are are great to that have was awesome for fourth edition that was yeah, if you're playing if you're playing in person, it's a worthwhile. I don't know if they still have them, but it's a worthwhile thing to have something visually represented yeah, on the one. on the table that you are. Uh, that, yeah, exactly. That box right there. Yeah, that's and it's good. I mean, would you pay like probably like twenty bucks for it? Yeah, it was it was actually cheaper than I thought it was going to be. 
yeah, it's, it's, it's a worthwhile endeavor if you're playing in person because minis don't represent conditions and shit. Uh, I remember when I got the starter set, the Dragon of Ice Spire Peak and the Lost Mine of Vendel, where they have cards, and I kept those mm-hmm. cards. They're like condition cards, and I just hand them to the player. And then, uh, you know, they came with all the magic items that were in that adventure. And it's like, especially for potions of healing, we still used it in person. We'd have like the potions of healing and it's just really good. You just give it to the player in person. You you have a potion of healing. And so you know that you have it. And when he uses it, he just gives it back to the DM. Mm-hmm. Those sort of things really encourage you to remember things that might otherwise get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Well, there's uh, some examples that's out there. If you guys want to go out there and check out uh, things that we uh, talked about. Let us know what you think of those, or send us send us yours. What do you use? What uh, uh, what resources do you use at your game if you're playing virtually or in person? But uh, let's do a quick community question, Dave. You got your die with you? Boom! I get sixteen. Sixteen. Oh, oh, oh! This might actually go really well with our main topic. Nah. All right, so this one comes from Mysterious oh, Parking. It's probably like, don't, don't, don't do it. Don't do yeah. it. That's going to be the answer. Don't do that. Whatever it is you're thinking, don't do it. This one comes from Mysterious Parking 44. Do you give players hints or suggestions? When players come across a puzzle or an enemy with a specific weakness, how likely are you to tell your players? Do you try to be subtle about it? Uh, quote, by the way, guys, did you ever check behind the pillars or pull that lever? Or are you direct about what you're, what you want them to do? Quote, wizard, you have a spell that two shots this creatures use that and you'll be safe. End quote. What prompts you to give hints? Do you always offer one at the, at the very start of the encounter? Do you try to read the room when players are scratching their heads or do you need your players to literally ask? And finally, what do you do for open-ended tasks? If the mission is get the key from the governor, However, uh, however they do it is fine, but a player asks, what should we do? How do you respond? The reason this I think that this, a lot of new- yeah, this could kind of go in with it as we were talking about how to get players invested. Uh, this is kind of like handholding to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a big fan of handholding, but there are times that I have given out more information than I actually planned on. And for some reason, what governs those times? Yeah, it, I I was gonna say I don't know why. There's been times that I've read a description, or I've given them a task to do, and I can just see the looks on their faces, and I think that's what it is. And then all of a sudden, I just say, "Oh, well, you know, you can do this, or you could do this, or uh, you uh, this character over here, you've had a background with this sort of thing, uh, and you would know this." Uh, and then I end up giving just a lot more information to help them along or at least to get them started. But what do you think, Dave? If you set the stage for an encounter a challenge or whatever properly, your players should not be confused. So I don't think your instincts are all that off base there that if your players are looking at you like, we don't know what the fuck to do, you've probably failed somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the proper solution to that is to lay things bare to them. Uh, I subscribe to the Socratic method, which is that people learn best by probed inquiry and just exhausting, just continuing to ask questions until the questions are answered to their satisfaction. And that's how you arrive at the best semblance of the truth. Moreover, I don't typically have a path to whatever it is the players are trying to achieve in my mind. And as a matter of fact, sometimes I will just deliberately go like, I don't know how the players will deal with this. It seems difficult. Yeah. It seems so, a lot of times that's the fun that I have in the game is seeing how the players come up with it. You might have a few ideas typically, but sometimes I'll craft scenarios where I have no idea. <laughs> How are the players going to get around this? Well, I can't see. I, I painted them into a fucking corner. Let's see what they do. So I hardly ever offer options like tell them 
maybe if the player is new, I might give something to them that relates to them. However, there's a big however here, mm -hmm. which is I also try to put myself, imagine myself in the world. And while I do that, I acknowledge that the players and the characters are separate entities. Mm -hmm. So what that means is if I were playing a character that was a wizard with an 18 intelligence, I, I don't have an 18 intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, I'm not a dumb guy, but I'm certainly not somebody that's what you would call an academic type. Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly not somebody with like super high processing power to my brain. So if I'm playing a character like that, that means that there is going to be some things that are more available to the character in their mind than are available in my mind. And the DM's job is to kind of bridge that gap. So if a character has a particularly background that's relevant or is trained in a certain skill, your character has a plus eight arcana and you're mid tier, low tier. It's not out of line to just tell them that they just know something that relates to the quest, that relates to the challenge ahead of mm -hmm. them. Give them some lore because they would know it or based on their background, they would have an understanding of something. There's no need to force them to pull at that thread. But to say something like, well, you have a spell that does X, Y, and Z, like that, to me, that's a bridge too far. You should allow the players to kind of troubleshoot and come up with problems. But also, if you're trying to imagine that you're in the world that they're in, then try to imagine the way their characters perceive that world. That is to say, if they're fighting an enemy and the enemy is immune to non-magical damage or, you know, magic damage from normal weapons. I find it hard to believe that the character who has just a regular longsword is going to be slashing away at a golem or whatever it is, totally ignorant to the fact that it's just really doing absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to come right out and say, he appears to be immune to your attacks. But you can describe in a way that might give the player some sort of cue, right? You, you, you slash into this creature and it just basically your blade glides down off of it and clings and looks like it's more or less unscathed or you know that communicates to them that maybe what I'm doing isn't as effective as it might otherwise be because you would have some feedback in the world if you actually existed in that world there's a big difference between you punching some person in the face and you punching a fucking brick wall. Yeah. And to act as though there's no feedback to the character's perceptions is to ignore the world that you've built. So I always try to frame things in that sort of way, and I might give some sort of clues. Simultaneously, if a player has high perception, they have high insight, I might have some sort of threshold that I go, okay, a player's with 15 or 16 or better perception or insight We'll just notice this thing. You have an inclination that this guy's maybe not being totally forthcoming about whatever. Motives don't seem entirely pure. You happen to notice that this creature that you're fighting has X, Y, or Z about their anatomy. Those are clues. I'm a much bigger fan of clues and allowing players to pull at the threads and letting the consequences of not noticing. Again, if you're a player and your DM mentions something, it's typically of importance. Unless they're being a dick like we've talked mm. about previously and just trying to scare the shit out of you by emphasizing something. But just the fact that something comes out of your mouth should be an indicator to the players that maybe this is noteworthy and they should, you should pique their curiosity. If they feel like too much like they're just being ushered down a path like a horse with blinders on, it's not likely to be fun with for them. Do you have any other tactics, Matt, that you, is that the frame of mind that you put yourself in when establishing how much information to give a player? Totally. Um, I don't know if we've talked about it on this show, but I know that we, you and I, we've talked about this so many times throughout our years of playing is when players start to say, fuck, I don't know what to do. Say, Hey, make an intelligence role. You know, mm -hmm. just as like you said, you might be playing a dude that has 18, 19 intelligence. 
None of us at this table have 18, 19 intelligence. Perhaps you can. Something will come up. Also, uh, when you were talking about learning of vulnerabilities and things like that during play, uh, back in fourth edition, you were there for this. I used to give bonuses if they would use their minor action to do a knowledge roll on a creature. Sure. Depending on the creature. I make it a free action. Mm -hmm. um, in fifth edition, I just, I'm like, it's a free action because yeah. you're just recalling some information. Yeah, yeah. What I would do, uh, you know, if they were aberrant or something, it would be, they would roll an arcana roll. If they were natural, of course, it'd be a nature roll. If it was undead, it would be religion. But as soon as they got mm -hmm. three, it was either three or four successes, you know, knowledge rolls, they would now get a plus one against that creature uh, because they would just be gathering all this information together and sharing it with everybody. Um, and I like to make it that it's the character that's gaining this information, if giving. Uh, I don't like to, like I was saying previously, when I see the looks on my players' faces, when they just have like that blank stare at me, like, what the fuck did you just say? I'd prefer to do something, have it a roll, or uh, or if a player says, if I, you know, hey, I grew up here and there and did this, would I have any information on this? I'm like, yeah, you know what? You would. Way to bring that up. Good on you. Here's a Benny. Uh, I'm... I try to stay away from that. What I previously said, when I just see them looked at me and I just like, Oh, well, you know, you could do this or this. I don't want to tell them what to do. Like you said, don't, I don't want to shoehorn. I don't want to make it easy mode because I do. I want to see how they decide to do this. So I, that's, that's the Socratic yeah. method, right? You want them to ask questions. What do I know of? I love it when players say, what do I know about this monster? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Or do I know anything about this monster? And they go like, we'll just do a check. And usually how I do it is it, it's kind of a different tactic than, than you take, but I think it's equally effective, which is to say, okay, you have a monster and the monster has a variety of things about it. So what I usually do is just set some information at an easy DC, mm -hmm. some information at a moderate DC, and some information at a hard DC. So something like resistances and vulnerabilities mm -hmm. is going to be the hard DC. But something about like its powers, you know, is probably in the more moderate DC. And then something like the creature type. Well, you know that this is a demon. You know that it's undead. You know that it typically has a better than average armor class. You know, it's probably easy. It's alignment, things like that. Alignment, creature type, probably movement. These things are something that if you knew what the creature was, you would probably know these things about mm -hmm. it, right? Oh, that's a wolf, right? Wolves are fast. I know <laughs> just about how fast they are. I know that they pounce on and enemies. They right? work together. Then, right. Something a little more esoteric like, would be more at a hard DC. And maybe I don't quantify that in game terms that you know they have the pack tactics right. feature. Which means that, like, if they're adjacent to any other creature that is in their pack, then they get advantage on your attack roll. But I might say something like, they have a tendency to work together, much like warriors flanking an enemy. However, they're just as effective at, like, taking down enemies and tend to concentrate their attacks on a single target. It gives you an idea about their tactics and kind of how they work, and the players can kind of maybe suss that out over time. But I love when, I love when players ask what they know of something and again something like a riddle like the questioner asked sure your your character is smarter than you you know maybe they're maybe they're up against a wall like well i don't have any ideas of riddle beyond my capabilities then you just go okay can i can i just do an intelligence check to try to get some maybe foothold on how to do that and in which case i might give the if they do particularly well i might have like again three sets of clues you know, a clue that if they hit the hard DC might make it easier. Moderate DC might give them a better chance. Um, an easy DC would just be kind of something vague. So you, you should try to have those thresholds set up or, or like you said, some sort of system in place that incentivizes. And this kind of goes back to our discussion about giving permission. Mm -hmm. And when you allow the players to ask you questions and query without feeling as though they're cemented into some sort of action or, or just stonewall because they don't know what to do. You give them permission to kind of ask and try to delineate 
the differences between their knowledge and their character's knowledge. And that's a key distinction to be made because characters are likely to have different sensibilities. It's very difficult. For instance, if you are playing somebody super dimwitted, it's probably a little easier to, to dumb down your overall intelligence level. Uh, but it's very difficult to downgrade your your charisma, right? Mm. When I play characters, I don't have a t I tend to gravitate toward fighters and rogues, and and I I realize this over time that I play characters that don't typically they may have like low to moderate charisma, but because I'm a GM and I'm familiar with the game and I'm a little more talkative and assertive, I tend to fall into like a leadership role and it's like well that makes no sense i have like 12 charisma and meanwhile our paladin is just like doing what i say all the time mm -hmm. that's not you, you so it's it's hard to tamp down your charisma and it's hard to amp up your your intellect so you you kind of have to allow that the players are going to play characters probably precisely that are antithetical to their own sensibilities you know if you're like a meek and quiet person maybe it's fun for you to play somebody who is outspoken and, and purposeful and, and assertive. And maybe if you're a particularly small person, maybe you like to play big, burly, strong people that are not. And so you have to acknowledge that players gravitate toward things that are maybe not right in line with mm -hmm. their sensibilities. And I think allowing for that, difference between the character and the player is what's key but if you spoon feed them and tell them like well you have a background in this and so like you know this is what you should do give them information things that they might know or options that they they might avail themselves to in some way maybe there's a role maybe there's not maybe they can use their background feature class feature something toolkit or really underused uh capabilities give them an option that's either a role or some fun opportunity for role playing. And I think that, that they should figure it out along the way. And if they don't, then I don't know. What if they don't, Matt? Well, that's where <laughs> we not, we got to start thinking about keeping them invested with a little segue mm -hmm. there. When you're making the campaign, there's a few things that you really got to put into place in order for them to at least stick around you don't sure. want them st sitting there and all of a sudden getting on their phone and start scrolling while you're trying to describe a scene where this one character especially is going to be um the big spotlight uh mm -hmm. when it comes to keeping players uh invested into the campaign that you're doing there's a couple different ways that you can do it a lot of some of them work better than others uh especially when we were talking about the the spotlight campaign before uh if you yeah. just pick one out of there of course they're going to be invested throughout the whole thing this story is about me i want to know where this is going to go um but i wanted to ask dave first of all when somebody asks you how do you keep your players invested and just like you know a couple sentences what would you say players like a few things booze cunt gold okay <laughs> you did, this is on, these are the things they like so for, yeah. i was about to say i was just like yeah i was gonna say gear gold magic items there you go <laughs> um <laughs> it's nice to know <laughs> that we think alike <laughs> um when it comes to a player being invested it it's easy to provide them uh, concrete incentives, right? So you're not off base there and saying rewards like gold mm -hmm. and magic items. These things are, they're good uh, rewards, but I don't know they're, that they're what keep the players invested. Right. What keep the players, what keeps the players invested is their connections to the overall narrative so is it personal for them in some mm -hmm. way? Is it going to add to their character's story arc? So despite the fact that players will tell you that they want awesome magic items and they want all kinds of gold, 
what they really want is to be awesome. Right. 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 Ooh, they, that's perfect. And, and they think that and they think that these things are are an avenue for them to be awesome. I want a Vorpal sword. Mm-hmm. That'll make me awesome. Try to avoid things that make your players awesome that can be taken away from them. I'm not a fan of this. I like things that make your players awesome because they have great honor. They have the respect of people around them. They are feared because they are ferocious in their own right. Like, it doesn't matter. I always say this about uh, uh, the tools of the trade if you have a hobby, right? I shoot pool. I just got a new pool cue. You bowl. But but let's face it. If I played F and Raise, I don't know if you know who that is, like arguably the best pool player ever, I could have a fucking $10,000 balabushka and he could have a fucking mop stick and he will kick my ass because he is a superior player. This is the way you should try to think about ways to invest your players in your game, which is that they have moments where their unique talents, irrespective of the concrete things that they have, their items or gold or their mounts, whatever, allow them to shine because they're moments of uh, a unique manifestation of their class, maybe their race to a lesser degree, um, but certainly whatever sort of personality and unique amalgam of abilities that they've crafted for their character, especially if you can get it away from the mechanics of the game and show that it is a a moment for their character to have uh, self-sacrificing activities, moments of moral courage, where it might take a lot of integrity to do something that is in line with their values, their bonds, that includes the camaraderie to their fellow PCs. This is how you get people invested in a narrative. Yeah. And so I would say the first order of business is to make sure that you don't forget what the players want is to be fucking awesome. I think you <laughs> nailed it on the fucking head right there. Just, yeah, make... What What are some ways that you allow your players to, to be awesome without just giving them shit? And I'm not poo-pooing giving mm-hmm. them shit concrete things a cool sword or whatever but that uh, a cool sword a holy avenger or something should be earned and should be a reflection they should be worthy of this item because they're already so fucking awesome mm-hmm. and it should make them more awesome they it sh- their awesomeness shouldn't hinge on the uh the accumulation of their gear at least i don't prefer that yeah i don't either i like to really dive into their personalities um, one big one, Jason, uh, Dave knows Jason. Jason has been one of my players for a very long time in a couple of different games. Good player. Hmm? Yeah. Very good. Good player. Yeah. One thing that Jason loves to do, he likes to play the weirdo and he loves to really get in. Cause he is well, a weirdo. Cause he is really a weirdo. Uh, and he really digs on people reacting to his absolute weirdness. Think, um, if anybody's ever seen Cowboy Bebop, Ed in Cowboy Bebop, he likes to play oh, that yeah. sort of style. And I know how to really feed him with that. And that's how he feels awesome during a game is when people react to his weirdness or because of his weirdness, yeah. something comes up. Uh, so I know how to feed into that. Uh, I also know that a couple other players. Yeah. As long as you can, I love that. I love that you said, make them feel awesome. Because I feel like that is the big one. And as soon as you know your players, you know how they get to feel awesome. Or if uh, they do try different characteristics, they try a different trope that they're doing. And you help them really get into it and you feed them on this new thing. And they they find it and they find that they really like it. Um I've had a couple players that have only ever played martial fighters. They like to play big burly types uh, that just hit hard and make things bleed. Uh, and then there was one time that they said, you know, I want to try something different. I'm going to play a druid. I said, oh, whoa, okay. It's a little different. And they were very peaceful, very beatnik, hippie-like. And I helped them uh, along with that. And I could see the smile on their face as they were playing that it was it became like holy shit i found a whole new 
thing, this whole trying to tell a story from a different point of view is very cool. And ever since then, they got really into their character and they helped drive the narrative, which helped me a whole bunch because now all the other players are into it because this one player is into it so much. But God damn it, I can't, I can't go on from more than you just saying make them feel awesome and how much you can do it without just giving them monetary value pretty much. You don't have to give them money. You don't have to give them the gear. It does well, help. You bring up a really good point, and maybe I could succinctly encapsulate the other way in which you might make your players feel awesome or make them um, invested in your game. And these are my words, not yours, obviously, but it sounds like what you're saying is that something that connects your players to the world in which they exist mm -hmm. is also incredibly valuable. And if you can think of ways in which to do that, typically if a player gets a cool, awesome sword or something, that is a very easy way to connect them to the world. The sword has some sort of history. If it's a mat, if it's a even an artifact, it might be sentient in some way. So it connects them to that world. But there are plenty of other ways in which you can do this, right? There's, uh, let's say, maybe titles uh, i always try to like increase the player's reputations if you increase their reputation you increase their their honor whatever you want to call it they're viewed more favorably and even if they're not their level their equipment their hit points their ability to hit and kill bad guys is not that high they are more connected to the world they have some noble title mm -hmm. they have some uh, maybe not even noble title, but you know, a, a, a reputation in some way that that connects them to their fellow PCs and other NPCs. Because seriously, think about the most powerful players, the characters in any given D and D world, and the likelihood that they're just NPCs. Like a king is probably not going to as statistically powerful as even a fourth or fifth level adventurer. Maybe he's a retired adventurer, but the likelihood that he's just a commoner with a lot of clout and he has that clout mm -hmm. and he can ratify the PCs in different ways. Uh, so if you can connect the players to guilds, um, maybe some sort of organizations, tribes, uh, giving them influence, even if it's not codified in titles in some way. This connects them to the world around them and consequently allows them to influence the world around them, which ultimately is really what they want to do. Mm -hmm. You know, they might say they want to fuck shit up and like be super badass and awesome. And and that's really a way of saying that I want to be able to influence the world in which I exist, because if you're a hero, I mean, isn't that really your goal? Isn't mm -hmm. that your goal is to like to to influence the world for better? And that's the world that D&D sets up is that there is pockets of civilization in a world of otherwise chaos where the tides of evil are constantly encroaching and the players are a vanguard against that evil. And the more they can influence it, not just through their raw physical power, but maybe their diplomatic prowess, maybe their, um, their ability to advise, to give insight. And, you know, again, this teases out the unique characteristics of any given class or, or player's personality certainly a, a wizard might be more like a visitor to a king and, and advise and his words are heeded because of his his raw intellect or a cleric for his his wisdom and pragmatism or perhaps a fighter because of his tactics and you know command and so you i think if you go too big with that it can quickly become kind of like a game of chess. You know, you want the there to be kind of a small scale party dynamic and you're, you don't want your players like navigating armies and like geopolitical, like some of that's okay, but generally speaking, you want to try to keep it, it grounded in some sort of quest oriented uh, narrative. But the more you can tie the players to factions you know, there's factions in D&D, the Emerald Enclave and the Lord's Alliance. Tying the players to these things gives them power, which is really what they want. Mm -hmm. And so it the 
more tangible way to do it is to give them gold and to give them and there there needs to be some of that because you know players want things yeah and of course rewards and useful and uh what uh, material rewards right material rewards and so there's there's some of that but there's certain things that you can kind of give that allow the more unique they are a sword can be taken from the player but if he forges a bond with some you know i don't know griffin or something who will come to his aid no one can take that from him because that's a relationship that he's built the same way he's built a relationship with a the king or the head of a guild or or you know some barbarian tribes and that that makes the character unique and the more you can make the character unique in whatever way through their class their race their personality their relationship to the other players in the group then then you start to arrive at what makes them feel invested in the game mm. that's perfect the whole thing with david so i don't even know why i'm here the man just hits the nails right on the head fucking karate kids that shit one hit boom goes in Make your players feel awesome. If they feel awesome, then they're going to be invested in your game. But how did we do today? Were we awesome? You should write in and let us know. Just tell us. Yeah, you guys were pretty cool. And if you want to, send it to cool. inside the GM studio at gmail.com, where I will gladly pull it up. I'm going to read it. And I'll tell everybody on the air. This guy told us that we're awesome. Who are those guys? Well, I'm Matt, and I'm with. I'm David. And uh, you know what? Good night. Good night.